0: My name is Derek, I'm the pastor here, and uh, welcome aboard, and yes, you're sitting in new chairs, what do you think? Yeah, thank you. For those of you who are new with us, we've been a church for 10 years, and all of the chairs we've ever had were donated to us, so this is kind of a big moment for us. We grew up a little, we bought our own chairs. Uh, true story, this only happens to us as well. The delivery truck came on um, Thursday, and uh, we were so excited. I mean, we're, the whole staff is out there just, you know, like... <laughs> we were so ready. I mean, all those chairs have been like stacked in the triangle crazy room up there, up front. There's a couple places coming to get them, and uh, they've been there for days. You know, we're like, chairs come up, the the guy unloads them, pallet by pallet by pallet. Fourth pallet, Lindsay notices that like they're totally different color, and so she goes up to the guy and says, these aren't our chairs. And he says, and I'll do the accent too, he says, uh, by law, Once they're off the truck, i got to leave them here. And I'm like, is that really a law? Like, <laughs> did our elected Congress, was this a special meeting? Yeah. So there was a huge pallet of chairs, immovable by us, you know, despite, despite the, the strength. Uh, I mean, he, it took a machine to get them onto the... So just, there's a tower of chairs, all wrapped up, cellophane, papered, cushioned, whatever and he drives off. Well, we unload all of these, and we're 40 short, by the way, uh, because 40 of our chairs are in Florida. They're hopefully coming up this week, Uh, and that other tower of chairs belonged in Florida, so Lindsay got on the horn with dispatch. I like saying that. Get on the horn with dispatch, and uh, so she got on the horn with dispatch, and so they said, oh, a total mix-up, but we'll bring them back, and we're like, okay, the pressing question is, what do we do with the, the, uh, the, the mound of chairs on our front porch? And she said, well, just leave them there. I mean, can you bring them inside? We're like, no, we, they're not moving. Like, we can't move them. We don't have a thing to move them. They can't be moved in. And they're too tall to get in the door anyway. And so she said, I guess just leave them there. And I, So we, we had to remind her that they're going to sit on the sidewalk in a major city, on the most busy road in this major city, right? And she's like, oh, okay. So, Two nights they sat out there. (laughs) Two nights. I I just live a couple blocks away, but I would come down here every night and be like, they're still here. Like, I don't know who would take them, but I just expected there just to be a bunch of chairs all over the uh, sidewalk. But uh, nevertheless, they came and got them last night. So that was cool. So we could put our tailgating tent out there for you newcomers. So, you don't know the the troubles we've gone through. (laughs) That being said, a couple things about the chairs. It seems so stupid for me to make these announcements, but let me just tell you a couple things. One, uh, on the seat pocket in front of you, we put some readings for the coming week. They begin tomorrow, and they go through Easter morning. Uh, They're called the Holy Week Readings, and these are readings that the church traditionally for centuries has read together, which means if you read these, you're reading them with the church worldwide uh, during this Holy Week, and it takes you all the way to the Easter event. In fact, the text that we're going to look at today, you're going to hit again on um, later in the week, on Friday. And so, take those, stick them in your Bible if you would like. And uh, we also included the traditional prayers for each day. That's a prayer that you would pray. You just read it, and and uh, in, in doing so, you pray again with uh, the church, alone but with. It's a very cool concept. And so you would do that as well. So feel free to take those. I forgot to say that first hour, which is why there's two in every pocket. Um, So do that before you leave. We'll be posting these every day as well on our Facebook page. So if you're a part of that, you can see that as well. But I will not email you every day. So, uh, but you can do that. Also, underneath the chair is a rack. Do you see that? It's awesome, isn't it? I just want to point out the rack. So, no, but on the left side, there's a little thing that holds a communion cup. I mean, glory be, it holds a communion cup. Uh, as opposed to the floor, which has held all of our communion cups for the last 10 years. Um, if you want to take communion, we'll do this after the message. Most people just take it at the table, but we always tell you, you can bring it back to your seat. Now you have a place to put your cup. You can just put it right there. Okay. You got it? You're going to do it today, aren't you? You're gonna, I'm going I'm to use that little cup thing. So, um, so that's, what, that's what that is for. All right. Are you ready? Amen. <laughs> today is the Sunday before Easter, and traditionally the church uh, looks at one or two, one of two passages, uh, two stories. One, is, one option is the story of Jesus entering Jerusalem at the front end of the Passover season. Uh, it's this annual feast that's still celebrated today, and when he entered Jerusalem, this was sort of the beginning of the end of his final week. Uh, before his crucifixion. So there's that story. I like that story, but it's also a really kind of quirky story. But the other option is to talk about uh, the trial of Jesus, Jesus in court, Jesus standing um, at his own defense, right? So I chose that story today, and it's uh, the the version we're going to use this morning. There, it's in all four gospel accounts, but the Matthew 27 version uh, is the one we're going to do today. It's just four verses, so 11 verses. Uh, through 14. So if you have a Bible, you can open to that. Well, obviously we put things on the screen for you, but if you want to make notes and highlight things in your Bible, then then go for it. Um, so are you ready? This is a really incredible story, and I want to say that before we get before we read the first verse of this story, it's going to it's going to feel like a non-story. It's going to feel like I don't understand what this is about. Um, And I think you would be with Pilate on that, Uh, but I think you'll find at the end, if you just hang with me, and I I, I don't want to say I'm apologizing, but this is really just going to be mostly just information for you, Uh, and then I'll try and close this out quite devotionally uh, at the end. So just sort of walk with me a few minutes as we move through this story. It begins, uh, uh, Matthew writes, Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Now, even as a teenager, we would come to this story. Something fell out of my Bible, didn't it? Uh, We would come to this story, and I would read or hear this verse read, Jesus standing in front of the governor, and he would say to him, Are you the king of the Jews? If you're thinking about it hard enough, you're going to, at some point in your life, ask this question, and hopefully we'll answer it for you today so you never have to ask it again. But the question is, okay, time out how did Jesus even end up here? And maybe you've never asked that, but let me just sort of say some things to you that will cause you to go, how come I've never asked that? If you were to start today and just read all four gospel accounts of the life of Jesus, you're not going to find anything, nothing, that would warrant Jesus to be on trial with the state officials. Nothing. His key message and platform was to love God and love your neighbor of no interest to the state. Like, that doesn't harm anybody. And there really isn't anything that Jesus did, by and large, that would cause anyone to turn him into anybody. In fact, and I don't mean to say this lightly, but the life and teachings and behaviors of Jesus are kind of just, it's, it, it kind of causes you to think, how in the world did he end up in front of a Roman governor, whose name is Pilate, we'll get to that in a moment, how did he end up there? Because there's really nothing that he said, did, or even the people that he hung with. I mean, he wasn't like running around with mercenaries. You know, there wasn't this kind of like, no one's eyes are on him. I mean, there are a few, but it's not, again, it's just not, it's nothing about him that you would walk away after reading a story and walk away with like, yeah, they really needed to, they needed to get that guy in custody. It's just not there, and so the question being, like, why did he end up here? Like, how did he even end up in this place? I want to back up to chapter twenty-six, and this is a a little experience right after Jesus was arrested in the garden. And the arrest itself is a little sketchy. It takes place at night, which is not when arrests usually take place. And so there's there's already some things going on with Jesus and his arrest in the garden, but they drag him before. Uh, Caiaphas, this man known as the high priest, I'll get to that in a second, and they start questioning him about some things. And I want to begin with um, part of verse 63 forward, uh, or 60 forward, sorry, where am I going here? Let me look at my notes. Yeah, 63. Uh, where am I? You don't know. My eyes are going bad. It's the new seats. Um, <laughs> Uh, it's on the screen right let's put it on the screen there it is all right so jesus is standing before the high priest and some others the chief priests and elders and the and, and it says the high priest said to him so he's talking straight to jesus i adjure you by the living god tell us if you are the christ the son of god so this is their question for jesus all right you need to tell us if you are the Son of God, if you're the Christ, if you're walking around saying that you are the Christ, the Son of God, we want you to tell us that straight away, because there's been some confusion. So now they're pressing him directly, like, tell us exactly what this is about. The next part says, Jesus said to, the, to him, you have said so, or, uh, or, or as you say, or that's what you're saying, okay? You have said so. And then he goes on to say this, but I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. So we'll just hit pause for a minute because this is quite confusing. Here's Jesus once again saying things that he wasn't asked about. Are you the Christ? Tell us if you're the Christ the Son of God. And he says, that's what you're saying. And then he references, this next part, he references a passage from Daniel chapter 7, which at the time... Of this trial had become through the years a key text within the Jewish faith about the Messiah. And specifically, that he would judge. He would be the judge. This is language about a judge. This is language about ultimate authority. So it's a funny question. Tell us if you're the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus says, You have said so. That's what you say. And then he says, but I'm telling you this. I am am the judge. I I have ultimate authority. And it's at this point I want you to notice what happens next. Verse 65. Then the high priest tore his robes (laughs) and said, he has uttered blasphemy you have now, he's uttered blasphemy, what further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. And then they said, they answered, or the question was, what is your judgment? They answered, he deserves what? Now that's what they say. Now, I don't have time to get into this. I mean, we do have time, but you don't have time. Uh, I don't have time to get into all of this. But For centuries, this formulation of an idea of what the Messiah would look like had been growing within the Jewish community. There's a wealth of literature that exists between the last stroke of the pen in the Old Testament and the days of Jesus um, that describes this. Like all all of these writings that we've discovered, primarily in the Dead Sea Scrolls, but we start to learn about what they thought about Messiah and what he would look like. And part of what they thought he would look like would be that he would actually be in a castle (laughs) with a throne and an army, and he would rule the world. And many people had come to this conclusion that when the Messiah came, that he would be a liberator, both physically and spiritually, and that's kind of how they saw it. But also there were these, you know, this growing sort of you know, here comes Jesus talking about his kingdom, but it doesn't match the kingdom they think it should match. So there's all this confusion about kingdom. I fault Jesus for using the term kingdom, but whatever, he's God. But it's like, because it's a confusing term. Like when we hear it, that's what we think too. We think, okay, that's an army, that's a government, that's laws of the land. But Jesus comes in and keeps saying, yes, it's a kingdom, but it's not the kind of kingdom that you think of when you think of kingdom. Like, God's kingdom is different. God's kingdoms and ways are very different. And so this was quite confusing to the religious leaders as well, but the thing that really set them off was that he essentially says, I am God, all right? And so they hear, him, they hear this, and the chief priest tears his robe, <laughs> a, a sign of utter frustration at this point. Like, if I've ever torn my clothes, it's because I, I don't know what else to do, uh, and he tears his clothes, and he says, there's nothing else we need to be discussing here. What is your judgment? And they say, he deserves death. This is what we think led Jesus to Pilate. This is why we think he hung on the cross. The problem is, this is just what they think should happen to him. It has nothing to do with the authority they have over him. Let me explain this. Rome could have cared less about people running around claiming to be God. They could have cared less, just like you and I could care less if that was happening today. We would just dismiss it. It doesn't bother them. Uh, In fact, Josephus, uh, who was born right about the time Jesus died and became a historian, worked his way up into uh, the aristocracy of the empire, was a writer, a historian, a general, wrote great works of history, some that have unleashed a lot of things for us. And he would say, and has said that in this time, he names no less than 13 people by name that are running around claiming to be the Messiah. So Rome is used to this. And they don't care. Rome could care less that anybody is walking around claiming to be God, no more than you and I would care today. Plus, it wasn't new information for them. And also... Rome, uh, the empire itself, had a great tolerance for religious faiths. I know it seems contrary to what we think, but they had a great tolerance for people and what they believed. Very similar to our own nation in the sense that, hey, believe what you want to believe, worship what you want to worship, just don't let it bother us. And this is essentially the way Rome operated. Like, in fact, they allowed religious groups like the Jews to even live in their own communities and within their own communities govern themselves according to their own laws, as long as those things didn't bump up against national interests, security, or they broke, you know, the laws of the land. Now we have something similar to that in our own country, like the Amish. They do what they want to do, and we go take pictures of them. And um, but they live according to their own ways, and they govern themselves according to their own ways. And we don't necessarily bother them unless it breaks national laws, laws of the land, or if it poses a threat to national security. So we have that within our own country as well. So Rome didn't really care. I mean, you could be whatever you wanted to be. They were kind of Persian in the sense that when they took over a place, uh, they embraced the religions of the land and just said, that's fine. Well, you you can do what you want to do. The problem would be is, as you can imagine, would be if for some reason that led to a breach in the laws or national interests or, more than anything, security. Now, the difference in Rome and us is that when things like that happen here, we have a nice system where nobody gets hurt and we just sort of deal with that. But there, if you show yourself to be a threat, they kill you. That's what they would do. Crucifixion, by the way, is not reserved just for Jesus and the two criminals. In fact, nobody knows how many people Rome crucified because it's just that many. Uh, There are accounts of uh, historical accounts of when there were uprisings, and Rome would put a stop to it and crucify thousands that very day and line the streets with them, as if to say, This is what happens. Remember who's in control. And if you buck the system, this is what happens to you and your family, and so on. And so, Do what you want to do, believe what you want to believe, govern yourselves how you want to govern yourselves, but if you pose a threat to us in some way, then we'll put a stop to that immediately. That leads us to the real reason why Jesus is on trial with Pilate, because again, why in the world did he ever end up there? Rome could care less if he thought he was God. It's something different. Let's back up into the first part of the story. They're trying to find things to prosecute Jesus with, and they can't. And then it says in verse 60, and this is before what we just read, at last two came forward and said, this man said, talking about Jesus, and here they quote Jesus, I am able to destroy the what? The temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, "Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you?" And it says that Jesus remained what? This is key. He remained silent. Now what's interesting about the temple is that and we learned that this is Caiaphas, he's the chief priest at the time, the high priest at the time. Caiaphas, as the high priest, is in charge of the temple. That's his gig like he takes care of all the operations of the temple, and what's in the temple as well is a treasury. There's an economic value to the temple. There's even a national interest of the temple with Rome. Keep in mind that Rome kind of rebuilt the temple before these days. They have an interest in this place. It is a place of power. It is a symbol of power. It is an icon for these people, and it also has a great economic value, not to mention just the volume of people that go in and out of this thing. And Caiaphas is over that. He also serves as a liaison between the Jewish people and the Roman government. And so he kind of speaks on behalf of the Jewish people to Rome. He is, in a sense, a part of the Roman staff, in a way. Because the high priest, since the days of Herod the Great, which is when Jesus was born, the high priest had been appointed by Rome for many, many years. So at some point in history faith and the state got in bed together. And it gets real tricky. And they have no reason to put Jesus on trial because he thinks he's God and the Jews can't do anything about that anyway. They can't they have no right legal right to crucify anybody. That's Rome's gig to play and they played it very well. But when Jesus says something about I'll destroy the temple, then they have a little bit of a thing here. They have an inroad to get a voice with the governor because this is of national interest. This is of interest to the state. This is an insurrection. This is some sort of treason that's being talked about here, even if it's trumped up, even if it's not real, because Jesus is ultimately talking about something else. But here they go saying, that's what we can do. He deserves death because of blasphemy in their mind, but we can't do anything about that. But this treason thing, we can do something about. And Caiaphas can get a hearing with Pilate. And so we go back to our story. That's just some background information for you. Uh, Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, are you king of the Jews? So here's this kind of political language about king. Are you mounting some sort of movement? Are you trying to take over? And Jesus said, you have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? And then it says, but he gave no answer, not even a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now, you may or may not know the rest of the story, but Jesus uh, or Pilate, there's some tradition where they could let a prisoner go. Uh, and you know this part of the story is a man named Barabbas. His actual name is Jesus. It's actually two Jesuses. It's a very interesting story. And uh, so essentially, Pilate goes out and says, which Jesus do you want? And there's enough noise for them to let Barabbas go and for Jesus to die. And so it's this real interesting kind of back and forth between Pilate and the people, and the people and Pilate, and Jesus just stands there. And why is he silent is sort of the question that you always have to sort of ask. Like, why is he just remaining silent? I mean, here's Pilate saying, Why aren't you saying anything about the charges being testified against you? And he gave no answer, it says, not even a single, to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed at this. I mean, Pilate is somewhat amazed at this man's reluctance to defend himself. Now, in the Roman court system, to not answer a charge is to allow the proceedings to go forward. It has happened with Jesus and the high priest, too. They ask him if he's the son of God. He's like, yeah, that's what you're saying. But then they ask him about the temple and he just remains quiet. So it pushes the proceedings forward. And now he's in front of Pilate and Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? He's like, yes. That's what you say. And then all of these charges come up and Jesus gives no answer as if to say, let the proceedings continue. Silence pushes the proceedings forward. Silence allows what's next. Silence is a form of admission. And the reason Jesus ended up in front of Pilate had nothing to do with his claim of being God, at least as far as Pilate was concerned. He was standing there because of a charge of treason, even though it was very small, which was a threat. And so Pilate questions him, and Jesus gives no answer because it allows things to move forward. But secondly, truth. John outla- In John's account, is all this back and forth about truth. Pilate wants to know what truth is. Jesus says something about truth, and Pilate wants to know what truth is and what is truth, and Jesus doesn't really answer him. And so there's more silence in some of the other trial narratives. Jesus just remains quiet. And sometimes truth uh, is not heard in words. Sometimes it doesn't matter what we say even if it's true or not. And there's this real sense in which Jesus is just remaining quiet because truth... Innocence is standing right in front of Pilate. That's the truth. And truth will also be something that he will see in a few days. Like truth always shows itself. And in this case, it will resurrect itself. And so there's just no answer from Jesus, in part because what's the point? Truth sometimes just has to run its course and show itself. But I think most importantly for us as we enter this season towards Easter, is that what Jesus is participating in at this moment in trial by remaining silent is He is becoming a willing sacrifice. Now on the surface, it's just for Barabbas. Right? It does, it, it, just on the surface, if you're not a follower of Christ, if you're not a believer in any of this, but you kind of believe the trial scene, uh, it's just He's giving Himself up for somebody else. He's a really nice guy. right? Gandhi would sort of talk about this and say, man, the whole trial and death of Jesus is remarkable. It's to be commended. But then he says, but I don't find anything mystical or miraculous about it. It's just, here's a guy who was willing to give his life for somebody else. So on the surface, it's just that. But Jesus is participating in making himself a sacrifice for Barabbas, who's a criminal, who deserves, according to the system, what he's getting. And Jesus doesn't deserve any of it. And Jesus stands quiet while they let this guy go, and then he dies, and here's the key phrase, he dies in the place of Barabbas. Barabbas would become the first and not the last, certainly not the last, but he would be the first person for whom Jesus died. And the interesting thing about that is, it's someone who deserved the penalty of the crime. Barabbas is guilty, Jesus is not, Jesus dies for the guilty. It's the first example of Jesus dying in somebody's place that really deserved to die. But He was set free. And so what's happening in this story, and all four Gospel writers mention this story, and they emphasize the silence of Jesus, which draws us in to pay attention to this. That Jesus died in the place of others. He's sinless, and yet He died for the sinful. He died in instead of someone else. And what's also interesting and powerful is that the world into which Jesus was born, God sent Him, is broken. Was broken. Continues to be broken. Sin runs rampant in our world. And brokenness in our world is often... Uh, the attempts to fix brokenness in our world is often done with more brokenness. Murder to pay back murder. Murder. I'm going, I'm going to go behind your back because you went behind my back. You sleep around on me, I'll sleep around on you. You steal from me, I'll steal from you. You fire me, I'll, I'll put your name through the mud. Like this is the kind of world we live in. When something is broken, we fight back with more brokenness. Right? Or just when we think about our own, like if we're introspective enough to leave everybody else out and think, I can't believe that I have done these things or thought these things or been in these places where I shouldn't have been. And there's a great sense of guilt in our own brokenness. Or when we think about just the divisions in the world based on economics or education or race or ethnicity and how we separate ourselves out, how we sort our world and say, that's you, this is us, you stay over there, we stay over here. Right? And how this is the world into which Jesus was born. This is the world into which God sent His Son, a broken world. And instead of paying for brokenness with brokenness, God pays for brokenness with perfection. I mean, this is the theological thing that we have to walk away with today, is that Jesus, the perfect, un, you know no sin, died in the place of a sinner. And it kick-starts the whole thing about how the grace of God moves through the world. In a sense, instead of God punishing the world for its brokenness, God punishes Himself. So the moment you go, God's so terrible. Oh, wait. He took it upon Himself. God took all of this upon His own shoulders. And Barabbas is the first example. And in many ways, we as people, as individuals, relate more to Barabbas than any other character in the Bible. Because God died in our place as well. When we deserved... Whatever it is that we deserved, God stood in for us and died for us. Amen? Amen. You can't forget that. It's so important. And I want to read uh, in closing, and this will get us to communion. I want to read a chapter from Isaiah, or most of it. And it will shed light on what's happening with Jesus, because in a sense, Jesus is standing there fulfilling His own prophecy. Now, verse 7 of the text, I'll put on the screen for you, as you can see already, and it says, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus is fulfilling his own prophecy. Let me read what's around that, and then I'll pray, and then at your own pace you can make your way to one of the four communion tables around the room, but I want you to go with these words in mind. And as you make your way through communion today, you take the bread and you take the juice, you're just reminded of this, that it wasn't anything that we've done to gain any grace from God. It's just that He stood in our place. And so let me read the the whole story surrounding verse 7 here in chapter 53. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, and we have turned, every one of us, to his own way. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit. In his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, and he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see its offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge, shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet, he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. A summary statement would be this, his silence gave salvation its voice. Let's pray. Let's pray. God, thank you for this story. And we just come around it each year, and we marvel at it. We're confused by it. We... But it forces us to ask the question, why? And the answers are one of two. It's either that Jesus was crazy, and he died for no reason at all, or he died for everybody. Everybody. So either it's meaningless or it gives all meaning. And God, it ent- we enter after this story into kind of a waiting period. And the resurrection becomes the truth. And- but until then, we just are forced to wrestle with this story. But God, we know that your scriptures say that he who had no sin became sin for our sake so that we might become your righteousness, that we might become your people, forgiven, grace-filled, free to to live in your world as your children. And God, as we take the bread and the juice just now, I pray that you speak to us words of encouragement, reminding us of your great love for us. And that even though uh, we live in a world that's full of billions of people, You stood in each of our places, and you died for us. And let us carry that this week as we move through the next seven days towards the resurrection. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.